0: Hi, this is Philip and Casey.
1: And we're on our way home to Cincinnati, Ohio with our
2: brand new puppy, Frankie. And she's about to listen to her first ever NPR Politics podcast.
1: This podcast was recorded at...
2: Yay, baby's first podcast. I mean, puppies for a dog.
3: (laughs) Hey, there are people who would disagree with you that the dog is their baby. They're both equally appreciated. This is funny. We should
2: leave it in. Twelve fifty-seven p.m. on Thursday, the twentieth of June. Things may have changed by the time you hear this. Keep up with all of NPR's political coverage on the NPR One app or on your local public radio station. Okay, Okay. enjoy Enjoy the the show. show. Did she
3: say what kind of puppy? No.
2: I
1: don't don't think so. so. Things are going to change for the pillows in their house.
2: Hey there, it's the NPR Politics Podcast. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House. I'm Scott Detrow. I cover politics. I'm Aisha Roscoe. I also cover the White House.
3: And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
2: And guys, I have some exciting news to share with you. We are hitting the road. I am headed to Colorado with Osma, Mara, and Danielle. We'll be in Boulder for a live show on September 20th. Uh, so if you're in Boulder or Colorado or the surrounding states, uh, or if you just want to go on like an epic road trip to hang out with us, head to nprpresents.org and pick up a ticket. I
1: was in Boulder for the first time ever covering the now uh, off the rails Presidential campaign of Howard Schultz. I love Boulder. It's such a great town. Oh, who, it
2: is awesome. Who
3: doesn't, right? I mean, it's amazing. Like how it's a really nice, nice place to live. Unfortunately, it's so expensive now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, there's that. But September is a long way off. And today uh, we need to talk about uh, some remarks that Joe Biden made that are getting him in some serious hot water with some other people who are running for president. Uh, and also, um, Decision handed down by the Supreme Court this week and what we are expecting ahead. So let's kick things off with Biden. Scott, you have been following the twists and turns of this over the last 24 hours, Can you just sort of walk us through how this happened?
1: Yeah. And the reason this is a big deal is because it gets to a lot of the broader differences that Biden has with the rest of the uh, presidential candidate field. And it also gets to a lot of the vulnerabilities that people have expected from Joe Biden when you look at the upsides and downsides of his campaign. So here's what happened. He was in New York City at a fundraiser Tuesday night. And uh, the Biden campaign, he does a lot of fundraisers and they let a pool reporter in the room who sends out a report to everybody about what he said. He was talking about how he's been criticized for trying to work with Republicans in the past. And he started talking about the fact that he's able to work with people he disagrees with, that he worked with Mississippi Senator James Eastland and Georgia Senator Herman Talmadge. They are both Democrats, but they were staunch segregationists, like really opposed to any civil rights bill. And uh, here's what uh, Biden said about Eastland. He said, he never called me boy. He always called me son. Then Biden goes on to say, at least there was some civility. We got things done. We didn't agree on much of anything. We got things done. We got it finished. But today you look at the other side and you're the enemy, not the opposition, the enemy. We don't talk to each other anymore. Now, some of you make fun of me sometimes for my obsession with Robert Caro's LBJ books, but they were actually newsy and useful here because I was looking up quotes about James Eastland from the civil rights era and found some of the most violent, disgusting, like I'm not even going to paraphrase it on a podcast, racist quotes uh, at the height of the Montgomery bus boycott. So this was not a subtle person in in terms of their views on race.
2: So that statement from Biden then leads to a response from Cory Booker.
1: A lot of responses from across the board. Uh, Cory Booker was one of the ones that got a lot of attention. And it was, I guess it's surprising in some ways because Cory Booker doesn't lash out against other Democrats that much. But it wasn't surprising because Cory Booker talks about the civil rights movement so much. It's like the heart of his stump speech. He put out a statement saying you don't joke about calling black men boys and went on to say that a relationship with proud segregationists, as he put it, are not the model for how we make America a safer and more inclusive place for black people and for everyone. And he said he was surprised and disappointed Biden hadn't apologized
2: for this. Can we just pause to say that the word boy is a really freighted word?
0: Yes. And it's not something that would have been used with Biden anyway. Like that's the issue. Like Biden is a white man. The issue is that white uh, people would use that word with grown black men uh, to uh, degrade them, essentially. So then
2: Kamala Harris also running for president. Weighs in as well.
0: Yeah,
1: and this is uh, Harris and Booker, are two of just three uh, black U.S. senators, along with Tim Scott from South Carolina. So here's what Harris said at the Capitol.
0: I have um, a great deal of respect for um,
2: Vice President Biden, but to coddle the reputations of segregationists, of people who, if they had their way, I would literally not be standing here as a member of the United States Senate, is, I think, um, it's just, it's misinformed and it's wrong.
1: So all day... We're waiting for Joe Biden to respond to all of this. And he doesn't until he's at another fundraiser, this time in the D.C. suburbs uh, last night. And uh, this is how he responds. He's, he's outside afterwards getting ready to go. And reporters uh, go up to him and ask him questions.
0: Are you going to Are apologize
1: things, like Cory Booker has called for? Cory Booker has called for it. Called for it. He's Corey asking you to apologize. apologize. He knows better. I'm not a racist bone in my body. I've been involved in civil rights my whole life career, period, period,
3: period. One of the big criticisms when you talked to a lot of Democratic strategists of former Vice President Biden was that they didn't think he could stay disciplined. Right. And this is one of those potential unnecessary missteps when he didn't need to go this far or talk in this direction. Uh, why even bring those guys up? Nobody even knows who they are. You can now make they the, do. You could make the point. That he wanted to make in a totally different way, and this is, like I said, a big reason. A lot of Democratic strategists have been sort of waiting for the, you know, the 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 bottom to drop out for Biden, and this is a huge test for him a week
0: before the debate. And, and this this goes to that issue of is Biden the person of this moment in time to represent the Democratic Party? Uh, like you said, he's talking about stuff that happened back in the 70s it's not really clear why he's bringing that up but he it's also this idea of civility and like well yeah back then we got things done well, back then uh, there was Jim Crow and back then there was lynching and all of these things. And so to kind of say, well, we need to go back to the good old days is not going to ring the same for everyone. Now, it's not clear like what impact this one incident will have on his support from uh, black voters or anyone else. But this is a but this is something that people are going to be questioning Biden about. Yeah. And thus far, he's actually actually, according
2: to polling, had strong support From Black voters or decently strong support. And and he has some really high profile African-American lawmakers and surrogates who are working for him.
1: Absolutely. And some of them defended him yesterday. Uh, But I think to me, what jumped out to me from that response was even if you don't want to apologize for the statement, I think there's like a grounded defense of saying, like, what I'm trying to say is that I worked with people I I really disagreed with on everything they stood for. And also making the argument, if you look at his career, he, he said he got into politics because of civil rights to begin with. He was a of course Barack Obama's vice president but to me to say to make that that joke whatever the intention was about the phrase boy and then to have a black candidate for president say that's deeply offensive and historically loaded and then to respond to that saying you should apologize to me I think is incredibly alienating to a lot of people
0: and it's just tone deaf and then to say the not a racist bone in my body that's that's the kind of go to language for people when they're kind of called out on something that they say about race. And it's all about their bones aren't racist and all of this stuff. When it's, <laughs> your, it's your mind and the words. And, not, and I don't think that people are really saying that about Biden. But they're just saying that the way that he's talking about this. And I think that's what Booker was trying to say was that the way that he talked about this Booker felt was inappropriate.
3: You know, so one of the things, though, about Joe Biden is, again, this very long track record that he has of statements that he's made in the past. I mean, if you think about this is the same guy who said Barack Obama was clean and articulate, right, and that you couldn't go into a 7-Eleven without an Indian accent. Like and he's also the person who got picked up while in that same cycle of making those comments as the vice president for the first black president. Right. So the way Barack Obama, you know, reacted to Joe Biden, uh, you know, 11 years ago versus how the Democratic field is reacting to him now really tells you a lot about how the Democratic Party has changed itself, where 2019 Democrats are versus then and what Barack Obama was like and what he felt like he needed to do.
2: So I don't know if we really know at this point where the Democratic Party is or where it's going to land but like this is what a primary is for um if your front runner doesn't go through the traps of of all the bad stuff coming out in the primary uh then it comes out in the general election and then there's nothing that the party can do about but it but
3: this is why i've said that i think biden is good for the democratic primary overall because you know if biden wins the nomination it's because he was able to you know Overcome all of the things that people said were problematic about him potentially. And because there's such a long primary, he's going to have so many people coming at him. And if he loses, that means that somebody was able to beat the biggest name in the party and a former vice president.
2: There is another presidential candidate who is dealing with issues related to race. And it's in his day job, Uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg of the city of South Bend, Indiana, who has been rising up in the polls and is now sort of a top tier candidate for the Democratic nomination. Um, Scott, there was an officer involved shooting in South Bend involving a white officer and an African-American man.
1: Yeah, over the weekend, a uh, South Bend police officer shot and killed a 54 year old named Eric Logan. The officer said that Logan had a knife and wouldn't drop it when the officer approached him. Uh, Police officers in South Bend do have uh, cameras on them. That's something that Buttigieg implemented. But this officer's body camera was not turned on at the time of the shooting. That has been cause of a lot of frustration. Uh, Buttigieg canceled several days of campaign events to be back in the city. And he actually gave a speech uh, the other day at the uh, graduation ceremony for several New South Bend uh, police officers. Uh, talking about how uh, how you know there's there's justified anger and there's a lot of mistrust over the history of policing that they need to work against, but um, he's gotten a lot of criticism from uh, from from black residents of South Bend. Uh, there was a long Washington Post profile of all of this that had some really searing quotes. I should point out first of all that that uh, graduating class was all white police officers. There's been several years of tension. Uh, Buttigieg fired the black police chief uh, early on in his tenure as mayor. It's a quote from Oliver Davis, and this is in the Washington Post, who's, the, uh, who's on the South Bend Common Council. How is he handling it? Well, he talked to the media before the family. He skipped the family vigil full of black residents, and then he gave a speech to the police. So how do you think it went over? Buttigieg in the middle of a presidential campaign with the debate next week, trying to balance some really serious stuff in the city he's the mayor of.
2: And, you know... He has not been having the best time reaching black voters or or voters of color like he's he does not poll as well with people of color as he does with. White people,
0: and and he has been trying to address that. I I was reading over like the profile of what had happened. Another, I think, uh, another resident said basically that these tensions run so deep, and they feel like Buttigieg, not just Buttigieg, but none of the people in the town who are not black understand. And basically said they feel like when a black man calls the police, they end up in the morgue. And so these are very serious uh, conversations. And these are things that were happening as Buttigieg was mayor. So he has to kind of address, like, how is he going to how is he going to deal with this issue? And then also on a national level, when all these issues are going to continue to happen, how do you deal with this? Yeah. What
2: would what would it say about his presidency? What does his mayorality say about his presidency, potential presidency? Yeah. One other thing before we go to the break. Um, This week over on Capitol Hill, uh, there was a hearing about reparations and presidential candidate Cory Booker uh, was
0: there testifying front and center. Yeah, I mean, and this was a huge moment and I think a really historic moment to have a hearing on Capitol Hill about the issue of reparations. I think it's something that for a lot of people, they thought that they would never see Uh, and to to have that as even a serious discussion about it. Uh, and so, wherever people stand on it, but just to have it seriously weighed, at least in this hearing, was uh, remarkable. Really,
2: can you give the five-second description of what reparations are, or would be?
0: Well, so reparations, and and backers of reparations are quick to say that it's not necessarily a check, although some say maybe it should be a check to to black people uh, who were affected by slavery and and Jim Crow. But a lot of the supporters would like is programs or basically things to counteract like housing discrimination that black people suffered from. So zero interest loans for black people or free college education. So issues. So there could be programs and issues like that to kind of address some of those things that happened uh, throughout uh, this country.
1: And we've seen uh, some of them actually enacted in a much more limited way in recent years, like Georgetown University uh, has made a point for, you know, slaves were involved in the building of that university. and They made a point that uh, descendants of those slaves, uh, I believe, are able to go to Georgetown completely for free. Of course, uh, it's, it's very hard to scale that out to a national level, but it's a serious conversation in a way that it wasn't a few years ago.
0: And I mean, because remember, even President Obama did not support reparations. He called them impractical. So this is something and, and I think that you will get views all over the place. If you have, if you talk to a room full of black people, you get lots of views on reparations. I've had (laughs) these conversations, so you get lots of thoughts. But just, just, but you you can see how far the party has moved.
3: And think about what it means, uh, just in this Democratic primary. I mean, most of the candidates aren't supporting you know, payouts and checks to to uh, African-Americans for reparations. They've been sort of pivoting. Some people calling for, you know, commissions to look at it or studies and et cetera. And Barack Obama, as Aisha points out, didn't support this largely because he was trying to win over people who were swayable in the middle and might have been, you know, even uncomfortable with Barack Obama as being the first black president. And He didn't want to step into Uh, you know, really thorny issues of race, which he's gotten some criticism for from the left. And that has been completely ripped apart in this election, especially in the era of Trump.
2: All right. We are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, the Supreme Court has ruled. Support for this podcast and the following message come from WNET with Amanpour and Company, featuring conversations with today's headline makers and tomorrow's change makers. The show brings you in-depth conversations with global thought leaders and cultural influencers on the issues and trends impacting the world each day. Visit pbs.org Amanpour to go beyond the headlines. Weekdays at 11 p.m. on PBS or stream segments at pbs.org slash Check local listings.
0: Evangelicals play an important role in today's politics. But how and when did this religious group become so political?
1: This week on Throughline. The history of evangelicals in America.
0: Throughline from NPR, the podcast where we go back in time
1: to understand the present.
2: And we're back. And the Supreme Court today handed down a pretty big decision that involves the separation of church and state. And it also involves a giant cross on public land that is essentially in your backyard, Aisha.
0: Well it's it's behind my neighborhood in a very busy intersection, right? That I so I pass it all the time. Tell and us. It's about just like this a cross. little it's a little strip like basically a median where they have this big kind of stone looking cross that is, I guess, a memorial. I didn't really even know what it was for. I guess that's bad on me. I just would drive past it. It's like right in front of like a pawn shop, and I drive past it all the time on my way to church.
1: So it wasn't like the talk of the town I'm like, hey, man, it's a big Supreme Court <laughs> case.
0: No, I didn't realize it until I was reading NPR and then I was like, look at that picture. That's like my neighborhood. Right. That's like right there. Um, And so it's I I don't know that the people in the town (laughs) were really aware that something had risen to the Supreme Court level uh, about this memorial. But it is a very prominent landmark. Well,
3: it was a big deal locally, you know almost 100 years ago, because huh. this is a World War One memorial. And it was these moms in Bladensburg who had lost their sons in World War One. They wanted to create a memorial and they built this, but they ran out of funding for it. And in the 1930s, it was taken over and became part of the Parks Commission that wound up running it. This is public land and taxpayers pay for its maintenance. And the American Humanist Association said, why is this giant cross on public land that taxpayers are paying for its upkeep of? This seems wrong. So they took it to court. The uh, lower court agreed with them and said that this should come down uh, and shouldn't be on public land or taken over by some private entity. And uh, the Supreme Court today reversed that decision.
2: So, um, what was their reasoning on this?
3: So, you know, it was a 7-2 decision. So it was not actually not a 5-4 along ideological lines. Now, among that, there was some disagreement. Um, but what the majority opinion said, what Samuel Lido wrote, he said that it does not violate the Constitution's ban on the establishment of religion because it essentially has become a secular symbol. You know, there were rows and rows during World War One where it became popularized that P- this was a way to memorialize the dead. Should
2: I say, Tam, tell Tam. that to Jesus? <laughs> like, <laughs> I was going to say, Tam, do you, do you think a cross is a secular symbol? <laughs> I don't, I, you know, it, it, it has a pretty strong biblical New Testament um, yeah. significance.
3: Obviously. And what, you know, that was part of the descent as well.
2: So does this ruling say that, you can have a giant stone cross in Aisha's backyard or does this ruling say you can have a giant stone cross anywhere on public lands? Well, you and, could, you and and does this, you know, there there I think was a previous Supreme Court decision related to the Ten Commandments monument being in a in a a public building? Um Well, first does of all, this overturn that or
3: well look the, first of all there's a big distinction between public and private land right I mean when it comes to private land in aisha's backyard she can have whatever she wants and <laughs>
0: can have in whatever her, I want her backyard unless backyard sofa
1: I really want to know by the way like what Aisha personally thinks about the Supreme Court ruling but in the interest of us all being objective journalists I will not ask you that <laughs> if I <don't>
2: like <laughs> Okay,
3: but... Well, I mean, like I was saying, there's a difference between public and private land. Like You can have anything you want on your private property as long as it doesn't violate some local ordinance, okay, right? Okay, I wasn't
2: being well, literal. I was meaning like that particular monument. From... So,
3: but yeah. on a – <laughs> On a public land or the uh, metaphoric backyard for Aisha, um, you know, I hope your kids aren't playing on a median no, in an no, intersection. No. But Not that I know is, of. I don't is, know what they're doing right yeah. now. So what it essentially <laughs> says, the breadth of this ruling is pretty sweeping for already established hist- historical symbols that could have otherwise religious implication. The Ten Commandments, if it's up somewhere and the intent of why it was put up uh, isn't exactly clear, those folks would have a stronger argument for keeping those as a result of this case. Now, when it comes to establishing a new monument, erecting a giant 40-foot cross somewhere else in the country, now there could be an argument that that's put up uh, for religious intent. Which is the very fine line that Justice Alito was drawing here.
0: I mean, and that's an interesting thing, because even if you look at this as a win for religious rights groups, essentially the win is by saying that these religious symbols aren't actually religious. So it seems like a weird way to kind of win.
1: So... I've been very busy, I will be honest, covering the 23 people running for president and have paid (laughs) no attention to the Supreme Court term this year. What else is coming in the final days of this session? There are... three big cases that we're still waiting on.
3: One, it has to do with uh, the US census and the citizenship question, right? The Trump administration wants to be able to ask people, are you a citizen of the United States? We've had lots of stories about this, lots of controversy over it. People within the census department say that this will lead to a massive undercount. Um, but it looks like the court may be going in the, in the direction of allowing this question on the census, at least as oral arguments went. The other big case is about political gerrymandering when it comes to congressional districts in Maryland and in North Carolina. That's going to be huge and interesting to watch, especially ahead of the next time they draw these districts and ahead of the 2020 elections. And the third one is outside of politics a little bit, but it's about bias in jury selection when it comes to race. And it centers around this man, Curtis Flowers, who's been on death row for 22 years in Mississippi. He has been tried six times. Uh, and yeah. and was finally convicted uh, and he's appealed it, appealed it, appealed it. And uh, you know it's going to be interesting to see if the court winds up saying that uh, they seem to say in oral arguments that the prosecutor had um, you know overtly racist tactics in trying to uh, eliminate black jurors. If the court were to say, okay, we're throwing this back to Mississippi, uh, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens to the fate of mm-hmm. Curtis Flowers.
2: All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we get back, it's time to end the show the way we always do with Can't Let It Go.
1: Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Annie E. Casey Foundation, developing solutions to support strong families and communities to help ensure a brighter future for America's children. More information is available at AECF.org.
2: When you're paying for college on your own, there's a lot to balance. To help you get through it all, NPR's LifeKit talked to the real experts, students.
1: Finding a side hustle that works for you and works for your schedule is hugely beneficial.
2: Find LifeKit's new guide on how to pay for college in Apple Podcasts or at npr.org slash LifeKit. And we're back, and it's time to end the show like we do every week with Can't Let It Go, the part of the show where we talk about the things we just can't stop thinking about, politics or otherwise. Aisha Roscoe.
0: Yes. So this week, what I can't let go of is this story on BuzzFeed. And this is kind of, the story is not in honor of Pride Month, but in, in because it is Pride Month. Uh, this was a story about a woman. She, and it's called, The Time I Went on a Lesbian Cruise and It Blew Up My Entire Life. So this is a woman um, who went, She she's a lesbian. She is a lesbian. Okay. She is a lesbian. She went on a cruise. She had been in a five-year relationship with her partner, but they seemed like they were having problems, right? Like, if you read the story, you really got to read the story, but they were kind of open relationship, but she didn't really like it, and she thought that she would just kind of stay in this you know, relationship, even though they were kind of going in different directions. But then she goes on this lesbian cruise for work. She was covering it, like kind of covering like general generational issues, right? But then she meets this woman, yes. <laughs> Lynette, and she just, and Lynette is like from London, from so from the UK, whole other country, and she just falls in love. And then she gets home, she waits a week. And then she just, she breaks up with the partner. She moves out of the perfect apartment that she thought she had. And the thing ends with her on a plane going to the UK to be with Lynette. It's pretty dramatic. So for, she wrote for,
1: this like as it's happening? She
0: wrote it, well, after it happened. Okay. But it ends so with it talking about- is it working out well? About, we don't know. It ends with romantic pictures of them together. Okay. It was, it's just kind of like a romantic comedy, not comedy, but a romantic- that is Lots that has like story. all the plot points. Yes, like you're in this stuck in this relationship.
1: That the viewer is like this. It's not yeah, working. Yeah,
0: it's not working. And then you meet this new person, and then it's like, do you go with the the new person to London or do you stay in your kind of safe life? And she took the risk.
3: Well, you know what they say. Love is love.
0: Love is love, and so that's what she did. Now I do have to be negative. I don't think it'll work out. We know each other for like five days. We won't know.
2: Let's just let this. I, you know, <laughs> romantic comedies. Like
0: romantic comedies end with them getting together, yeah.
2: or in the process
1: of getting together, and
0: then it's yes, over. And, it's and you over. never know. And that's where this ended. But I'm like waiting for the next story, which will be like all the things I didn't know about Lynette.
2: <laughs> I don't know if BuzzFeed's
0: gonna publish that one. Okay, that was negative, but you know, Domenico. <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, what I can't let go of is a moment in the president's interview with George Stephanopoulos at ABC. Uh, that was sort of like an outtake that they ran. And uh, <laughs> Why not? It's all on the record, baby. It is all on the record. I was a little surprised that they wound up running it because the point of what President Trump was doing was to say, hey, let's retake this. Like we do in the podcast sometimes where we mess something up or, you know, someone coughs. Here's, here's a cut of that. At some point, I hope they get it, because it's a fina- it's a fantastic financial statement. It's a fantastic financial statement. And uh, let's do that over. He's coughing in the middle of my answer. Yeah, okay. I
1: don't like that, you know? I don't like your that. chief of staff. Hey, if you're gonna cough, please hey, leave the room. You get a shot
3: of, and I'll, okay. I'll come over here. Actually, I'll you. You just can't. Call. Just to change the shot. Okay. Sorry, Mr. Trump. Okay, do you Sorry, want to do that a little differently then? Yeah, or? we just changed the angle, Okay. yep. Thank you. So Come at on. some point, So he finishes his answer. He gives a new answer to this. ABC sort of changed the angle is what he was talking about there. And you can't see the president. You can sort of hear how perturbed he was. But he really looked perturbed too. like this. So he just couldn't believe the outrage that Mick Mulvaney, his chief of staff, would have been coughing in it. And frankly, when I first watched it, I didn't notice the cough because it's so natural. It happens. You're in a room with people. But he was really upset by it. And it just told me... That for all we talk about with this president being really aware of how he looks, how he sounds, all those optics and trappings of not just the presidency, but of his life. uh, This was an exclamation mark on that. And boy, the stress you would feel being in a room, you know, and had to work for him. And he's and you can't cough or sneeze. (laughs) Yeah. Like if you're Mick Mulvaney, someone who's done a lot for this president, uh, I wonder what's going through his mind right now.
0: Well, I mean, you know, we work in audio and sometimes you do get to coffin and that is that's not good. Like sometimes. right? It's not good for your, your takes or whatever. It's not good to have that coffin. Well,
2: yeah. one other thing about that interview that's worth mentioning is that George Stephanopoulos actually asked President Trump about our interview with Kamala Harris, about what she said in that interview.
1: Which I think is the first time President Trump has been asked about the NPR politics podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we know he's a listener, so
2: yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> All right, Scott, what can't you let go of?
1: Mine is about not realizing what you've possibly uh, got until it's almost gone and coming together with age-old grievances and turning the page. And it's actually a serious topic, and it is the fact that um, Red Sox uh, superstar David Ortiz, Domenico, he's not yet been elected to the Hall of Fame, No, right? it can't be because he, he hasn't been retired for five years. Right, uh, time is just melted in my brain. and yeah. I wasn't sure how I, he he will certainly be in the Hall of Fame one day. Yeah. Uh, David Ortiz, Red Sox player, led him to three World Series, uh, the bane of my existence for several years as a Yankees fan, 2004 in particular when he led them on a historic comeback. That made the Yankees look like idiots, and it was just the worst playoff series ever. But he was... For um, one team. Yes, for one team, not for the other (laughs) team. But David Ortiz was uh, in the Dominican Republic, where he's from, on June 9th, and uh, he was shot and really seriously injured, and it was very frightening, and I was... You know, I was out in Iowa and all of a sudden I see it on the TV and I was just glued to the TV and I was shocked at how like devastated and upset I was and just like really pulling for him. The Red Sox actually sent a plane to bring him back to Boston. He's doing much better now. And it turns out the whole thing was a fluke. It was a case of mistaken identity. The shooter thought he was someone else.
2: Which is wild because he's got to be a pretty big celebrity right. everywhere, but especially in his home country.
1: Yeah, don't accidentally shoot David Ortiz in the Dominican who, that, Republic.
0: That, that's oh what you God. would think. Yeah. Like, who would do that? That is, but like...
1: I was I was surprised at how much I, I felt like a deep feeling of sadness and concern and worry about someone who I'd spent... A decade aggressively booing and hating on every time I saw him play in person.
3: Yeah, it's it's amazing that it was a case of mistaken identity. I mean, this is a guy, he's like 6'3, 230 pounds. Like, this is not like someone that's easy to miss. He doesn't blend into a crowd. It's like you know? a very
1: unique profile.
0: Yeah. <laughs>
2: <laughs> All right, I'm last. Uh, and I think that this is, in some ways, a mea culpa. It is also a story about the dangers of analogies. Um, Oh, no.
1: Yeah. Uh, yeah. (laughs) Let's talk. Let's unpack this. Yeah. Yeah.
2: So uh, on Monday, I was on the PBS NewsHour and I was trying to describe what the president's big campaign relaunch rally would be like. Because Trump rallies are uh, in some ways like uh, going to see the Grateful Dead. Uh, You you get to hear the songs you want to hear. And uh, and he always plays the greatest hits, if you will.
1: So, uh, Tam, what did we learn from this experience?
2: (laughs) Oh, well, we learned that uh, The Grateful Dead does not play the hits.
1: No, they don't. They, They
2: don't play the hits. No.
1: So it turns out, and I watched this happen in real time, just like hundreds of people yell at you on Twitter. It turns out, first of all, I feel like people were offended that you made the comparison at all, but specifically, the Grateful Dead don't play their greatest. Hits. So they don't yes.
2: play hits. No, they just jam. They it just... turns out they're a jam band. I've never been to a Grateful Dead concert. I am not a deadhead. I am not a deadhead. <laughs> I, uh, Jerry Garcia died when I was in high school. Like I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, everyone. I'm very sorry, uh, especially to the person who said. I hate to be that guy, but you couldn't possibly be more wrong. Well, that's and are true. They,
0: they're all watching PBS <laughs> News I mean, we Hour are... too? All these deadheads? I was trying to figure out if somebody started <laughs> just... up like
2: a Reddit chain. Well, I don't know if like no. the deadhead email li- list server you know. was like, go get her. But they came at me on Twitter, on Facebook, over email. Oh it was... Well, everywhere.
3: I, I just will, don't name I, a
2: specific band. No, no. The well, and that's do that's
3: a great lesson because in um one of our last podcasts that I was in, we were talking about walk up songs, and I got wrong that One Republic uh, is actually from the state of Colorado. John Hickenlooper, you know, had uh, a One Republic song played, and we were all sort of just joshing on the song, and you know, someone said, "Oh, maybe they're from Colorado," <laughs> and I was like, "No, I don't think so," and it turns out. People on Twitter also knew that OneRepublic apparently is from Colorado Springs. Well, so there you we, go.
2: we all apologize for the errors. All right, that is a wrap for today. A reminder that if you want to come hang out with us in Boulder, Colorado, see us tape the podcast, scold me in person, we will be live on stage. Just head to nprpresents.org. And next week, the Democratic debates are kicking off. There's going to be 20 candidates over the two nights. So to start getting to know them, go back through our podcast feed and listen to some of the interviews that we've done with the candidates. We are going to be covering these debates on the podcast. So watch your feeds. I'm Tamara Keith. I cover the White House.
1: I'm Scott Detrow.
3: I cover politics.
2: I'm Aisha Roscoe. I cover the White House.
3: And I'm Domenico Montanaro, political editor.
2: And thank you for listening to the NPR Politics Podcast. It's never too late to apologize.